Today, the title of the message is The the Certainty of the Resurrection, based on 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like to start out by asking a question that I think we all have to think about in life. It is, what is the most important issue in life, in your life? What is the most important issue in your life? Is it your family? Perhaps your marriage, your, your children and grandchildren, is that number one in your life? Is it your health? It, it said when you, when you lose your health, you, you lose everything, right? What do you have left if you've lost your health? Or maybe it's financial security. Can you afford your, your mortgage? Can you pay your bills? Can you provide for your family? That's an important thing. Is it community? The community you live in, is it safe and is there equal opportunity that we're promised? Is there equal justice under the law? Is there a good education for your children and grandchildren? Or maybe the most important issue in life is just our individual liberties, that we have the freedom of speech and to gather this morning to worship. Maybe it's the ability to have private property. Imagine living in some place like North Korea where you don't have any of those things. That would be pretty important to you. The Centers for Disease Control says that the U.S. life expectancy for women is 79 years. And for men, it's 73 years. Now, interestingly enough, here we are in 2023. That's the life expectancy. Look what the Word of God says back in Psalm chapter 90 in verse 10. Oh, I don't know, written, what, 4,000 years ago. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it, our lives, are gone away, and we fly away. So God gave each of us a physical body. We have no idea how long our physical bodies are going to last, maybe 70, 80 years at best, I had a grandfather who lived to 101 years, long life. But soon it is gone, like that psalm says, and we fly away. And the question is, to where do we fly away? To what do we fly away? And for how long do we fly away? Now in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gave some of his final words to his disciples. And it's always important what someone has to say the last before they leave. These are important words. This is before he was crucified. And he told them about the next life, the afterlife. And that he declared that he was going to return to earth in the future, not as a suffering servant as he came this time, that time, but as a perfectly righteous judge. He says this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Just to pause here, the sheep being those who have believed in him, and their lives gave evidence of that belief. And the goats being those who 
didn't believe him and didn't put their trust and follow him as Lord. Then he finishes this discourse in verse 36 by saying, These, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, most of the world says that when we die, when our physical bodies die, we go to where? Eternal rest. But according to Jesus, and as is taught all over Scripture, every soul, quote, flies away to one of two eternal destinations, either eternal punishment or eternal life. So now going back to that original question, that we started with today. What is the most important issue in life? Is it the aspects of life that we enjoy for 70 or 80 years and family and marriage and financial security or where we live and freedoms? Those are the most important aspects of life for 70 or 80 years? Or is it where our soul will spend eternity? This is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? As as if that were so. No one's ever done that. But what does it profit a man if you could gain the whole world if you forfeited or lost your soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, if you could gain the whole world and no one ever has, it wouldn't be worth it if your soul was lost to eternal punishment. And so this is the issue of heaven for eternity or hell for eternity. That there's a perfectly just God, not a capricious God, but a perfectly just God who is the the sovereign king and sustainer of this universe. He is the creator of you and me. He is the determiner of our birth date and also our death date. He graciously and mercifully offers eternal life in heaven with him. Not just for the perfect or sinless person or moral people, but all who will surrender to his terms of reconciliation. And his terms, by the way, aren't, well, just be a better person and I will accept you. Or just do more good and your your good will outweigh the bad you've done. Those aren't his terms. His terms are these. Repent of your sin and believe and follow me. That's it. Believe that I set my son to earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he offered himself as a blood sacrifice to atone for your sin, to satisfy my wrath and justice, and that he rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and will return to be the just judge someday. That is the gospel, the good news, that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Our family lost our, the patriarch of our family earlier this year. My mom lost her her sweetheart of 75 years. They were married for nearly 70 years. My siblings and I and the grandchildren in our family lost our beloved dad and grandfather. My dad was 91 years old and he 
died unexpectedly and suddenly while sitting in his living room chair. There was no warning. There was no final goodbyes. He was just literally gone in a matter of seconds due to a heart event. What followed was shock and then a kind of bitter grief. And, and now an absence, even many months later, that can't and won't be replaced. The loss of a, a loved one is certainly not a unique experience for me or my family. Now, I would guess that everyone here today has experienced the death of a family member. And you know, it, it's painful, it's mournful, and it's also inevitable. Just days after my dad died, we buried him. And when you stand there, as many of you have done, at the graveside and see a, a large, rectangular, freshly dug hole in the ground, and when you see the casket holding his body being lowered and then covered with dirt, there's an unavoidable, sort of a rubber-meets-the-road question that confronts you. It's a test of the very foundation of what you believe, of what is actually true regarding this most important issue. What happened to my dad? Where is he now? Did he become non-existent, simply decaying in the ground into dust? Or did his soul, like Scripture says, did it fly away? And if so, where did it go? To eternal punishment? Or to eternal life. Now, as God's providence would have it, I spoke here last year on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first 11 verses, regarding what is of first importance to you. That title is based on what the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Corinth in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that Christ died for our sin and rose victoriously over death so that believers can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, and spend eternity with him in heaven, that is of first importance. There's nothing more important than that. It's the best news. It's good news, but it's just the best news because it is the solution to the bad news. Is that how can we, as sinful men and women, be made right and forgiven with a holy God and not fall under his just judgments? But there's more to... 1 Corinthians 15, than we covered last year, than the good news of the gospel. This chapter of Scripture contains the most detailed explanation in all of Scripture on the certainty of bodily resurrection, specifically how Christ's resurrection from the grave is the basis for, or is the guarantee of, you could say, the believer's resurrection to eternal life in heaven. In other words, the fact of the believer's resurrection is inextricably linked, like an unbreakable chain, to the fact of Christ's resurrection. So if you have a Bible today, 
open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're just going to very briefly review the first 11 verses that we went over last year because it is the prerequisite to receiving this resurrection we'll talk about today to eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, just to refer, uh, repeat those first couple of verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, and then if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. These two verses state that the message of the gospel needs to be preached, it needs to be received by faith, that it allows the believer to remain standing before God and not sent to judgment, and it saves one from God's judgment. But if you noticed, there's an if and there's an unless in there. If you hold fast, unless you believed in vain. According to Scripture, it's very possible to profess faith in Christ, but not actually possess it. So how does one know the difference between a possessor of genuine saving faith and merely a professor? Well, a professor of genuine saving faith through the grace, the supernatural power that God gives will profess faith in Christ. But not only will profess faith in Christ, will pursue faith in Christ. The desire and direction of their life is toward honoring Christ as Lord instead of away from him. And not only profess it and pursue it, will persevere in their faith in Christ. That's the difference between a possessor and one who merely professes saving faith. And then in verse 3 comes an explanation of this gospel that Paul is actually referring to. What's of first important? He tells you what it is. Verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain or are alive until now, but some have fallen asleep, died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So th this tells us why the gospel is of first importance. Because believing in Christ's life and his death on our behalf and his resurrection is the only way sinners can be saved and receive a perfectly resurrected body someday to live for eternity in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's of first importance. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey or believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Aren't you thankful for the clarity of Scripture? John 14.6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Or 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator also between God and men, the man 
Jesus Christ. The Bible's not unclear about the one way of salvation. Faith in the person of Christ, who he is, and his work on our behalf is the only way to be saved from eternal punishment and instead receive eternal life. And then starting in verse 4 there, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends the entire rest of this chapter, the next 54 verses, focusing on Christ's resurrection. Establishing not just the, the eyewitness fact about it, that the apostles saw the eyewitness Christ, that over 500 brethren believers at one time saw the resurrected Christ. Even Paul saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. This chapter establishes that evidence. But it talks about how his resurrection is the guarantee that the believer also will be resurrected to eternal life. So let's read along in verses 12 through 19 where Paul goes out on a limb and stakes the entirety of the Christian faith on the fact of Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is preached, Paul writes, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses or liars of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Notice how Paul starts this, this section with, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Who are these people in the church of Corinth saying this, that there's no resurrection of the, of the dead? These are the, the tares that are among the wheat. Parable of the t wheat and the tares in Matthew 13 where Christ says there's a whole world of professing Christians and within those professing Christians there are some true Christians, the wheat, but there are also some who profess Christ who don't really know him, the tares, and they're, they're mingled together. So there's some in this church, as there are in every church, that are saying there's no resurrection from the dead. But no Christian could say that, or would say that, that there's no resurrection of the dead. To be saved, you must believe that Christ rose from the dead. You must believe that he is alive today and that he reigns over our universe. You must believe that he's coming back again to reign, that he will bodily resurrect those who believe in him. Otherwise, you're not believing in the Jesus described in the Bible. The, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ three days after being crucified and placed dead in a tomb 
is the fork in the road, whether anyone even knows it or not, for each and every person in this world. Do you remember what the Roman governor Festus said to King Agrippa and Bernice when they came to visit him? When Festus was in the middle of this this trial, the Jews were bringing these accusations against Paul. They wanted him executed, and Festus was trying to kind of figure this out. He was a pagan, and he was trying to discern what was going on here, why these Jews were so intent on getting Paul executed. Remember what he said to uh, King Agrippa and Bernice? He said to them, When the accusers, the Jews, stood up, they began bringing charges against Paul, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Hmm. Unregenerate men and women have an amazing ability to either avoid or be distracted away from engaging with the most important assertion of all time, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and is still alive today. There is no one ever else who has ever lived about whom such a claim has been made. Lazarus, of course, he was raised from the dead, but he died again. No one has ever been like Jesus Christ with the irrefutable evidence that backs up the risen Lord. So Paul was saying in this little passage we just read, he's saying something kind of just like Festus. If Christ didn't rise from the dead and isn't alive today, Jesus is just another dead guy, right? Who death had victory over like everyone else. But Paul is so certain about Christ's resurrection that he gives in this section the one refuting argument that would collapse the entire Christian religion. If there is no resurrection after death, if Christ has not been raised, if our souls don't fly away after death, Christians are liars, your faith is worthless, your sins are not forgiven, and Christians are of all men most to be pitied. And he doubles down on this point, by the way, in verses, you skip ahead to verses 30 and 32. He says, Why are we also in danger every hour? If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Who does this, by the way? Who gives the refuting argument for the preeminent point they are trying to make? I mean, just imagine for a second that Charles Darwin had said, well, if there are no transitional fo- fossils between uh, species, my whole evolutionary theory is a lie. Charles Darwin never say that. Did he ever give the refuting argument of his false hypothesis? Do secular scientists ever say, well, if people just ever realize that nothing can't produce something and explode by itself into an ordered everything, well, the whole Big Bang theory of origin would just collapse. No one does this. But Paul does this because he's not afraid of the issue of resurrection because he knows 100% that Christ rose from the dead. After all, he encountered this risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he also knows that this has life and eternity-changing ramifications. And that's why he says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who are asleep or have died. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Notice that word now in verse 22. It's like he's saying, here's the fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul is like, he's like shouting a declaration here. And it's really the, the summary point of the entire chapter. Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. He's the, the first one. He's the basis. He's the guarantee that those who have believed and followed him will also rise again to eternal life. And then notice in verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, that first man, all die, so also in Christ, the last man, Adam, the, the, the last Adam, all will be made alive. And, and in this passage here, as in Adam all died, and so in Christ all will be made alive, he really explains two of the four principles of a biblical worldview. The first principle of a biblical worldview is that God created perfection, establishing his will and ways. That sets the context for this universe. The second fundamental is that man has rebelled, wreaking corruption, death, and alienation from God. There is, for as, the, as an Adam, all die. The third fundamental is God has graciously provided one way of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. That's in Christ, all will be made alive. And the fourth principle or fundamental of a Christian movie is that God will someday reward the righteous, punish the rebels, and create a new heavens and new earth. So Adam sinned and all his descendants sinned. We all die physically and are born spiritually dead. That's what he's saying. But the good news is God sent his son. And through who he is and what he did on the cross, we can be born again spiritually and receive eternal life. Now we're going to skip down a few verses because we're not going to have time to cover this entire chapter. Let's skip down to verse 35 where, where Paul makes this transition from stating the facts about the resurrection and the ramifications of it to answering the doubters. He uses a, a farming illustration here of sowing a seed and what happens when that seed dies in the ground. Verse 35, But someone will say, answering the doubters, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow in the ground does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but you sow a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else, but God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Those of you who are familiar with what takes place all around us all the time, whether on, 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 on farms or in nature, when seeds drop to the ground, the body of that seed goes into the ground and dies and decomposes just like our human bodies. But out of that dead seed, arises this this new and glorious and this nourishing life and so paul says in verse 42 
so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, a body that we have that's prone to sickness and death. It is raised an imperishable body, never to die. It is sown in dishonor, it's sinful. It is raised in glory, sinless. It is sown in weakness, we're all susceptible to temptation, but it is raised in power to have victory over temptation. It is sown a natural body. Let me correct myself. Not, not, to be, not to be raised in power with victory over temptation because there will be no temptation when we get a resurrected body. It is sown a natural body that we're bound by time and space. It is raised a spiritual body where we won't be bound by time and space. And then he continues by saying, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, Adam, earthy. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, and we all are doing that right now, those who believe, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And this is why this chapter is such good news. The first man, Adam, is our human representative. And he and Eve corrupted everything. And we all followed him into sin. But because of God's goodness and graciousness and mercy, God provided a last Adam, another representative for us. This time, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to offer victory over this, this sin and death and this eternal punishment that we faced if we don't repent of our sin. This is the believer's greatest hope in this life. Our God has given this incredible earthly body but it's a body that is dying due to sin and yet someday believers will receive a a new body like christ's resurrected body so no matter what our life is like now whatever pains and sicknesses and diseases and anguish we have in this life the believer knows that in the next life it will be infinitely perfect with this new resurrected body this is why paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For, I am, for if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Oh, that we all would have that kind of perspective about our life right now. So hope in Scripture is never, well, something I'd like to happen, but maybe it will, maybe it won't. Hope in Scripture is a future certainty that the believer awaits. I may have a sinful, weak, dying, earthly body that I groan in now, but God is going to provide a spiritual body free from all of that for eternity someday. 
Let's skip down again to verse 50. As we hear sort of a, what you could call maybe Paul's final crescendo in this incredible chapter on resurrection. Now I say this, brethren, he writes in verse 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable body inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal body will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying that, is that no believer is going to enter eternity with their earthly, perishable body. The believer is getting a new, imperishable body fit for eternity in the kingdom of God. Now, we're not going to dive into the deep end of the pool here on the various end times views on this passage. But let me allow a little bit of my personal understanding of this, that I do believe that living believers will be raptured or snatched away by Christ prior to the period of tribulation and prior to the return of Christ to earth to reign. But setting that aside for a moment, here are the main truths that he talks about in this closing crescendo of this chapter. Each person here today has a perishable body that will die. Each person here today will be resurrected by God someday and be given an imperishable body. It's either going to be an imperishable body suited for eternal life or an imperishable body suited for eternal punishment. And finally, each person here today has the opportunity to receive God's gift of a resurrection body for eternal life rather than eternal punishment. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's a physical death and spiritual eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who doesn't want a free gift? Especially one that has priceless eternal value. There is nothing that we can do or must do to earn this free gift of eternal life. All we must do is receive this gift by faith. To, to believe and what God has revealed about himself, what he has revealed about you as being a sinner and me, and about what he's revealed about his son, and about what he has revealed about the afterlife, and to not believe what God has revealed. What is that to say? That's to say that God is a liar, that the one who created you, that you are wiser than he is, 
that you will determine your own destiny rather than the God of this universe. And the Bible offers a a very stern warning about that kind of prideful rejection. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In other words, believe God. Don't believe your human reasoning. Don't believe what culture says. Believe what God has said in his word. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today, if you hear God's voice, and you're hearing God's voice from his word, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. When my dad was 26 years old, he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through God's grace and Mercy opening up my dad's eyes to understand and believe the gospel. He, he humbled his heart. He repented of his sin. He believed that Jesus paid the penalty for his sin and that God raised Christ from the grave. My dad professed faith in Christ. He pursued faith in Christ during his life. It was of first importance to him, actually. He persevered in his faith until the final moment of his earthly life. And so as hard as it was to lose my dad, I know 100%, and I knew 100% standing beside his graveside based on the promises of God's word that his soul has flown away to eternal life with his Savior. The grave is not his final resting place, as it's often called, but it's only a temporary holding place where he awaits Christ returning to give him a resurrected body fit for eternal life in this new heavens and new earth which God will create. My dad was given the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And each person here today has the opportunity to have that victory when you put your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So finally today, Paul concludes with a Therefore, kind of like after all is said and done in verse 58 there, last verse of the the chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, what does all this mean for you and me today as we sit here at Faith Bible Church, as we walk out of this church and go back into the world and our lives? What does this all mean? He says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We should be so certain about these truths that we can face life and death with a peace that surpasses all understanding. That we have work to do now for the Lord in a lost and and dying and confused and sometimes even frightened world that desperately needs to hear and believe the message that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one and only way to eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the promises, the certainties, the guarantees, the hope that you give us in Scripture and specifically that you give us with your Son. That his life and death and specifically his resurrection 
is the guarantee that the believer will receive a resurrected body fit to live in eternity in heaven with you someday. What a glorious truth. And let us focus on this truth that is of first importance. Let it impact the way we live our lives. Let us impact it. Let, it, let, let us have it impact the way we talk with others and how we see others. And to see others who, who don't have this hope, this, this faith, this trust in what you're going to do, Lord, and see them as being needy and share and give them and tell them where we have opportunity, the hope that they can have of this future bodily resurrection through faith in your Son. We thank you for this church, Lord. We pray that you would bless and strengthen and grow every believer here today. And that anyone who hasn't come to saving faith perhaps here today would have heard your word and would repent of their sin and put their faith in what your son did for them on the cross. Rising from the dead, guaranteeing that you have been satisfied, that your justice and wrath have been satisfied for their sin. And they can go on in newness, forgiveness of sin, and newness of life and look forward to eternity with heaven with you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.